Our uh, scripture reading this morning will be found in Psalm 92. If you would like to follow along with me, Psalm 92. Take these little dry mouth things. If you ever get a dry, dry that dry mouth thing, you know what I'm talking about. And it's really hard to talk and everything else, which is hard for me. All right, Psalm 92. <clears throat> it is good to praise the Lord and make music to your name, O Most High proclaiming your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night to the music of the ten-string lyre and the melody of the harp. For you make me glad by your deeds, Lord. I sing for joy at what your hands have done. How great are your works, Lord. How profound your thoughts. Senseless people do not know. Fools do not understand that though the wicked spring up like grass and all evildoers flourish, they will be destroyed forever. But you, Lord, are forever exalted. For surely your enemies, Lord, surely your enemies will perish. All evildoers will be scattered. You have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. Fine oils have been poured on me. My eyes have seen the defeat of my adversaries. My ears have heard the rout of my wicked foes. The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will still, they will stay fresh and green, proclaiming, the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no wickedness in him. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word today. It's such an encouragement. <clears throat> if you turn with me to number 654, we will sing Change My Heart, O God, and we'll sing it through a couple of times. Change my heart, oh God. 
standing and sing number 693 a shelter in the time of storm amen 693 sing all four verses the lord's our rock and in him we hide a shelter in the time of storm shelter in the time of storm. Oh, Jesus is a rock in a weary land, a weary land, a weary land. Oh, Jesus is a rock in a weary land, a shelter in the time of storm. A shade by day, defense by night, a shelter in the time of storm. No fears alarm, no foes affright, a shelter in the time of storm. Oh, Jesus is a rock in a weary land, a weary land, a weary land. Oh, Jesus is a rock in a weary land, a shelter in the time of time of storm. Oh, Jesus is a rock in a weary land, a weary land, a weary land. Oh, Jesus is a rock in a weary land, a shelter in the time of storm. Oh, rock divine, oh, refuge dear, the shelter in the time of storm. Jesus is a rock in a weary land, a shelter in the time of storm. So, if uh, if you've ever if you've never been uh, in a time of storm, your time will come. Uh, if you're already there, he's there with you as well. Amen. And uh, now, would the uh, ushers come forward for our morning offerings, please?
those that fulfill our call. May the offerings that we bring forth to you bring blessings to you in your church. Mm. We thank you for all that you have done for us. Mm. We pray all of this in Christ Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. If you remain standing, remain standing, and we will <laughs> remain standing, and we will turn to number 746. He keeps me singing. And let's just say, let's do the first and the third and the fifth verse. One, three, and five of 746. morning. It's good to see you all this morning. <laughs> uh, so if uh, one prayer card put in the in the offering, am I missing any? In terms of, okay, just as a reminder, um, I think we're actually gonna, looking at getting prayer cards to put in the pews, um, but if you have prayer requests that uh, you want to be praying for as a congregation, uh, we do have prayer cards back in, in the back, and you can feel free to write your prayer requests down and put them in the offering, and if you forget, you can just tell me now. So any, any prayer requests? Yes. Okay. Mm. 
it's very good to see you this morning, Gail, and we, we'll be praying for Mary. Any other, any other prayer requests? Allison. Sarah and Andrea will continue to be in prayer for them. And Connie. Yeah, Maureen. Mm. Okay. 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 Pray for Maureen's daughter, Ellen, and Maureen as she goes in and, uh, and helps her this week. Okay, what was the name again? Adney Peck. Okay, okay. Okay, we'll pray for his family. All right, let's go. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we we come to you this morning in various places. Some of us have had a wonderful and a joyous week. Some of us, some of us have, are coming, having had a hard week with burdens on our hearts. And so we come, Lord, wherever we are, to you, to your throne, to the throne of our Creator, knowing that you welcome us as your children. Those of us who've believed in the name of Jesus, we actually come adopted into your family. So we come with boldness in his name, we bring ourselves to you, Father. We come aware of our own sin, knowing that we're, we're sinners, we've fallen short of your glory and your standard, but we come, Lord, freely confessing, honest with you, confident that Jesus is enough, that we're not enough to stand before you, but Jesus is enough for our forgiveness. And we're so thankful for that confidence. Lord, we, we, we have many people in our congregation, in our community that we want to raise up to you. We, we think of Pastor Steve this morning as he's not feeling well. We pray that you'd be with him, that you'd encourage him by your word, even as he's not here with us this morning, but that this would be a Lord's Day when he's encouraged. Pray for Jane. You continue to strengthen her to, to be able to, to continue to support Steve, and you continue to, to be with her, Lord. We praise you because you're good, Father, all the time. And, uh, and we know that um, even as, as, um, as we walk with Steve in this journey, in his fight with cancer, uncertain whether it's spreading, um, we're, um, we're confident that you're good to your children. And Lord, we offer prayers this morning for, uh, for Nikki. Um, pray that you'd be with her and bless her in her situation. And uh, Lord, we pray that uh, uh, Steve and Jane are they're getting a new hospice nurse. We pray that um, um, 
that that would go smoothly, Lord. And we thank you that, that Steve and Jane know the greatest physician. We thank you for their confidence in you. Lord, so many names of friends and family we want to lift before you this morning. We pray for uh, Zoe, who's in critical condition. We pray that you'd be with her, that you, the great physician, would heal her, Lord. We pray for the family of Adney Peck as they grieve. Pray that you would be you, you would send your spirit as a comforter into their lives, and that they would have hope in you, Father, and in Jesus' name. Lord, we thank you so much that Gail um, is with us, Gail, and uh, we, Lord, we just pray for uh, for her cousin whose rent has been canceled. We pray that you'd um, be working in that situation. We pray for Maureen's daughter, Ellen, with a stomach problem, and we just pray that you'd bring healing to her. We pray that you'd use Maureen as a comfort to her as she visits her this week. Lord, we, as we've sung, um, you are your hope and refreshment in a weary land. And in many ways, it feels like our nation, our state, our world is a weary land right now in so many ways, um, politically plagued by sickness, and division and strife. So Lord, we pray that you, Jesus, would be a comfort in a weary land, that you would be refreshing the people of our nation, of our state, of our community, and even of our church community, Father, with the life-giving water of the gospel of Jesus. We pray that you'd bring true freedom in Christ and real revival to the church in America that we, your people, would be radically living for Jesus, that families would be following the Lord, that communities would be working together for the good of neighbor. We pray that our government would, uh, would wield their power justly and well. You give wisdom to our leaders. Be our refreshment in a weary land, Lord, and to our weary souls at times. Give us joy and always a reason to sing. We thank you that we can come to you this morning. We pray that you'd be at work in us as we continue to move through the service, that uh, you would be glorified in our hearts and that we'd be encouraged by your grace. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing this morning uh, in our series through Mark. Our text this morning is Mark chapter 2 and verses 23 through 38. I suppose it might help to have my Bible here. Mark 2. I'm sorry, I misspoke. 28. 23 through 28. I had that written wrong in my notes. I'm sorry. Through the end of the chapter. Starting in... As a yet again here, Jesus is going to deal with an antagonistic question from the Pharisees. And this time it's about the Sabbath. Um, and we're going to see that Jesus gives them more than they bargained for in his reply, as he usually does. So let's read it together. Mark 2, starting in, chapter, in verse 23. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. 
And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was not made for man. Or rather, I'm sorry, I misspoke. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, as we ponder your Son's word, speak to us. Help us to understand what Jesus has to say about the Sabbath and about himself. Clear out any callousness or hardness in our hearts and soften us up to hear from you. We know how easy it is to come to your word lightly, not understanding how much we need to hear from you here. Convict us of our sin and any error and comfort us with the warmth and the light of your grace to us in Jesus. I pray, Father, that you give me clarity of thought and concision of speech as I, as I preach. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was struck this week in the middle of summer, out of the blue, f- with a longing for Christmas. <laughs> the Christmas season might be my favorite holiday season, but I'll probably change my mind when the next holiday comes around. But... Pretty much everything about Christmas I love. But Christmas, like many holidays in America, um, in certain groups has drifted from its original purpose. Um, I, I was struck as a kid, uh, as Linus describes the materialism of American Christmases in uh, A Charlie Brown Christmas. Of course, that was back in 1965 that, that those uh, lines were written, but they still ring true today. Uh, materialism is still the God of Christmas for many people. Um, and even when Jesus, who is truly, as the, the saying goes, the reason for the season, when Jesus is mentioned in our culture, more often than not, it's, uh, we're just talking about the cute baby in the cute manger with the cute animals and in a cute little barn with little sense of the magnitude of the incarnation, that this baby was God himself, God with us. And a sort of drift um, often takes profound occasions and gradually, with accumulations of tradition over time, drains them of their primary meaning. Like a car out of alignment, if you take your hands off the wheel, you'll find yourself slowly drifting, drifting, drifting into the ditch. And, uh, and here we are in 21st century America, and uh, everyone celebrates Christmas, most everyone, but it's rare to find someone who could tell you what the incarnation means. Drift over time. And so drift had actually happened in first century Palestine, and Jesus is addressing it here. 
the Pharisees had drifted in their understanding of perhaps the most important religious observance at the time to God's people, which was the observance of a weekly Sabbath. Uh, Sabbath is a, a Hebrew word, and its literal meaning is rest. Sabbath means rest. Every seventh day, God's people Israel rested. By the command of God himself, on the seventh day, they did no work. And they devoted themselves to prayer and the word. Um, and this practice of weekly Sabbath rest was rooted in creation. The first two uh, chapters of Genesis record that in six days, God created the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, he rested from all his work, blessing the seventh day as holy. And that practice of weekly Sabbath was commanded, too, for God's people in the Old Testament. When God made his covenant with Israel, his people, in the time of Moses, one of the stipulations was that Israel would observe the Sabbath. It's the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is with you in your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. God invented the weekend. The, the Sabbath was a good and a practical gift. It guaranteed that everyone, as we just read, from the wealthy down to the common laborer, down to your animals, even strangers in the land, everyone would have a day off. Rest. We all need rest. But it was more than just a chance to take a breath, right? Um, God took the Sabbath seriously as a way for his people to remember that he was their God. Um, to remember their commitments to him. In Exodus 35, he proclaimed to his people that the Sabbath is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel. That's in Exodus 31, 17. Later, God spoke through the prophet Ezekiel, saying that he'd given his people a Sabbath rest for this reason, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. It's Ezekiel 20, 12. Sabbath was a gift of rest, but it was also a joyful reminder of Israel's covenant commitment to God, that they were his people. He was their God. And, and yet, God's people Israel, over and over again, this is the story of the Old Testament, were faithless with this great gift of rest. The Lord's refrain throughout the Old Testament prophets over and over again is that his people had forgotten the Sabbath. Over and over they abused God's good gift to them. And in doing so they, they showed really how little they cared about their relationship to God. Um, the Sabbath was a covenant sign between God and his people, kind of like a wedding ring. Um, a wedding ring is the covenant sign between a husband and a wife. And if a man took off his wedding ring and left it to collect dust in a drawer for months and years, you might wonder about his commitment to his wife. Israel had neglected the Sabbath 
sin. And that showed that they neglected the Lord. By the time Jesus came on the scene, we're dealing with a different problem. The religious rulers of the day no longer neglected the Sabbath. They had other problems, as we'll see. But like their ancestors, and this is our main point for the morning, the Pharisees misunderstood the Sabbath. The Pharisees misunderstood the Sabbath. Let's start reading in verse 23 of Mark chapter 2. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. Now, plucking bits of grain from another person's field was totally permissible. It wasn't stealing to take grain from another person's field. Uh, Deuteronomy 23:25 says this, If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. It's kind of like when you go to an apple orchard. Um, you're, you have to buy any, any apples you take out in the bag but typically you can eat an apple or two off the tree while you're picking. Um, There's actually an analogous command right after this in Deuteronomy where um, if you go into another another man's um, vineyard, you can eat grapes off the vine, but you can't take any out in a bag. And so there's this principle in in the law that you're allowed to take from another person's field as long as you weren't harvesting. Um... So it's permissible for them to be taking the grain. But verse 24, And the Pharisees were saying to them, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? The problem wasn't that they were, they were stealing from another person's field. The problem was that they were, in the Pharisees' eyes, harvesting. According to the rigid rules of these Pharisees, the disciples were technically harvesting the grain which is counted as work and was therefore forbidden on the Sabbath. Just plucking a couple of kernels of grain was counted as work. Like, oh, you've, you've broken the Sabbath law. By taking the wheat off the stalk, the Pharisees would have said, they were reaping on the Sabbath. By rubbing it in their hands to separate the chaff from the grain, they were threshing on the Sabbath. And by blowing the chaff out of their hands, they were winnowing on the Sabbath. Um, the, the Mishnah, which is a recording of the teaching of the Pharisees, has paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs of Sabbath regulations. The teaching of the, the Pharisees it was added on top of the Old Testament commands. Here's just, I'm going to read a couple of selections. Um, these are, this is a list of activities that were off limits. Sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, selecting, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing wool, bleaching, hackling, dyeing, spinning, weaving, the making of two loops, weaving two threads, dividing two threads, tying and untying knots, sewing two stitches, tearing in order to sew two stitches, capturing a deer, slaughtering or flaying or salting it, curing its hide, scraping off its hair, cutting it up, writing two letters, could write one, not two. Erasing in order to write two letters. Building, tearing down, extinguishing or kindling fire, striking with a hammer, carrying out from one domain to another. That's the 39 um, prohibitions. that You're not allowed to do these things on the Sabbath. And these regulations kind of begin to pile up over time. 
and as we begin to see, along with Jesus and his disciples, the first way in which the Pharisees misunderstood the Sabbath. We're going to see four ways in which the Pharisees misunderstood the Sabbath. Their ancestors had discarded the Sabbath, letting it gather dust in a drawer. But instead of putting it in a drawer, the Pharisees had put the Sabbath on display for all to see. And just to make sure that everyone kept from breaking the, the Sabbath, to make sure that no one was doing any work at all on the Sabbath, the Pharisees had come up with rules on rules on rules to add to God's law. Um, there's a few more details I want to share with you from the Mishnah because they're really interesting. Um, you're really only allowed to carry small amounts of things before it was counted as work. Um, so anyone who, who carried food any more than a dried fig was doing work. Um, you could carry manure or fertilizer as long as it wasn't more than to fertilize one plant. Um, you could carry garden seeds if they were less than a si the size of a dried fig. Um, you could carry as many as two cucumber seeds. Three would have been work. You could carry uh, two gourd seeds. More than that would have been work. Uh, you could carry two Egyptian bean seeds. Um, or you could carry a live, clean locust. Um, not, not more than two. Uh, you wouldn't be allowed to bite your nails. That would have been seen as work. Uh, or to pluck your mustache or your beard. That also would have been work. Um, and you wouldn't have been allowed to, women wouldn't have been allowed to braid their hair or to put any, any sort of makeup on their face on the Sabbath. That would have been work. And the, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. This is just a selection. It's just minutia of, of details of forbidden activities. And what the Pharisees didn't understand was that in all of their striving to try and protect the Sabbath, they were working harder than ever before on the Sabbath to keep from breaking the piles of Sabbath laws. So the first thing that we see is that the Pharisees didn't understand that their legalism was restless. Their legalism was restless. And we can mean a couple of different things when we use the word legalism. Um, the probably more well-known kind of legalism is the legalism of works righteousness which teaches salvation by law, by works. If you believe that you, you have to do this or this or that in order to be saved, in order to know God, in order to have your sins forgiven, that's legalism of one kind. And there seems to be elements of that mentality in the Pharisees' religion, but that's not the kind of legalism we see in this passage. Here we're seeing a legalism of addition. A legalism of addition. The Pharisees were adding their own regulations to God's law. And they were requiring their brothers and sisters to do more than God had required in his word. They had added to God's word, putting words in God's mouth that he had not spoken, and requiring God's people to do more than he had asked. It's a legalism of addition. And this kind of legalism is, as we said, restless. God's gift of the Sabbath was supposed to be a gift, a good thing. As we'll see later, the Sabbath was made for man. But the heavy burden of additions to God's law 
meant that the people spent their Sabbaths working harder than ever to fulfill the requirements, not of God, but of men. The requirements of the Pharisees just went on and on and on. And this kind of legalism, the legalism of addition, adding to God's law what is not there, um, isn't unique to the Pharisees. Any survey of church history will tell you that pretty much in every age, the church has found unique ways to add to God's law what isn't there. And uh, evangelicals of the 20th and 21st century aren't immune either. Um, Strict and total prohibitions against any form of dance or of women wearing pants or of going to movies at a theater aren't to be found in scripture. Requirements of a certain form of dress in the church gathering or of adherence to a certain translation of the scriptures are not biblical either. These kinds of religious rules require things that God has not commanded. Legalistic rules are an unnecessary burden to Christians, and very often they divide churches. So we must always be asking, what does Scripture say? What does Scripture say to the issue? And if Scripture is silent, we shouldn't try to put words in God's mouth. On issues where Scripture is clear, we have to be bold and unwavering. On issues where scripture is not clear, we shouldn't bind the consciences of our brothers and sisters to our own preferences. We shouldn't condemn those whose consciences dictate that they shouldn't go to the movies, for example. But at the same time, we shouldn't allow the non-moviegoers to be allowed to dictate to the congregation that no one else will be seeing Star Wars either. We live in charity with our brothers and sisters on issues where scripture doesn't bind the conscience. So as long as we stick to scripture's requirements and don't add to it the traditions of men, we can avoid the legalism of addition. So first we've seen that what the Pharisees didn't understand about the Sabbath was that they didn't understand that their legalism was restless. In overguarding the Sabbath, they actually kept the people from real Sabbath rest. And now Jesus is going to respond to the Pharisees with three arguments. Three arguments showing that the Pharisees fundamentally misunderstood the Sabbath and Jesus' identity. And he begins with an argument from Scripture. He summarizes events of one of King David's escapades before he was ever king, uh, when David and his men were on the run from King Saul. Verse 25, and Jesus, he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. So David, who was on the run, fleeing from King Saul, came to the priest, who was an ally of David, and starving, asked for bread from the temple. Bread which, according to God's law, was only to be consumed by the priests. And what's fascinating is that Scripture doesn't condemn David for this. 
Instead, David and the priest who supplies him with the bread are seen as the heroes of this part of David's story. Um, David was to be the rightful king of Israel. And I, I think Jesus' argument here is simple, that the ceremonial law isn't ultimate. Jesus makes this kind of argument elsewhere. Um, David, when he and his men were in need of sustenance, were not bound by the letter of the Mosaic tabernacle regulations. Though those regulations were good and instituted by God, but in this case, it was right that David, God's rightful king, would eat the bread. It was at the end of its life cycle in the, in the temple, be replaced with fresh bread, and David was given the old bread. As one commentator puts it, ritual observances must give way to moral obligations. And a thing may be done in a case of necessity, which otherwise may not be done. And this line of argument is just, it's very practical. When David had need and no other options, it was right that he would break the ritual law in order that he would stay alive. And Jesus makes the same kind of argument elsewhere, um, specifically about the Sabbath. In Matthew 12, he says, which one of you has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Which would have been work. But Jesus says, so it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. If breaking the Sabbath by working will save a sheep, do it, Jesus says. If breaking the law of the tabernacle will save a life, do it. The law should not keep God's people from doing good. The disciples weren't starving like David's men were. But this Old Testament example that Jesus provides goes to prove the point that the Pharisees didn't understand that the ceremonial law was not ultimate. If the disciples were hungry, the Sabbath law shouldn't keep them from getting something to eat. They didn't understand the purpose of the Sabbath, which Jesus goes on to explain. Thirdly, the Pharisees didn't understand that the Sabbath was made for man. They didn't understand that the Sabbath was made for man. Verse 27, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And the Pharisees had this backwards. They spent every minute of the Sabbath day working to serve the Sabbath. They were enslaved to their own man-made regulations. And Jesus called them back to the heart of the law. The Sabbath was made for man for the good of God's people. And as the disciples walked the fields on that Sabbath day, they weren't harvesting wheat, not really. They weren't working. Presumably they'd spent the day at the synagogue and then they'd gone for a, a restful hike through the fields. And they were hungry and they ate. And in that moment, the Pharisees' regulations actually would have been a burden, not a gift. A curse, not a blessing. The Sabbath was made for man. And this principle applies to all of God's law. God's commands are good. Therefore, are good. They're actually freeing. In the garden, God's first command to man was not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that command was a gift that command would have kept Adam and Eve from death. 
That command was made for Adam and Eve. God was for them in the garden. And he's for us too. It might be that you're struggling with obedience to God in some area of your life right now. You're wrestling with his law and you wonder if it's really good. You might feel like a slave to it, that obedience to God's law would be a kind of death. And if you choose obedience, that will be a a kind of death to your own self-will, a death to your flesh. But God's commands every time are the gateway to life. God has told us in his word how life ought to be lived and he's told us for our good, not to enslave us, not to imprison us, but to set us free. True freedom as human beings is the freedom to live as God intended. So that's, that's God's law generally. I think this principle applies. But specifically about the Sabbath command, let's think on that for a minute. I've been doing a lot of reading about the Sabbath this week. And Christians disagree as to how exactly the Sabbath command applies to Christians or whether it does at all. I don't really want to get into that discussion today, but I want to say a couple things. First, I want to say, because I think it's true, because Jesus said it, that the Sabbath was made for man. We're not bound to a Saturday Sabbath in the New Covenant, but our need for rest still goes deep. We need weekends. We need to stop regularly and rest. It doesn't have to be on a Saturday or a Sunday, but we need time of rest in our lives. The Pharisees didn't understand that the Sabbath was made for man. If you don't have a weekly day off, your work schedule is going to slowly kill you. You need rest, and you need time set aside for the worship of God. Rest and worship are the gifts of the Sabbath. And we need those gifts now as much as ever. So make space in your schedule for rest. Don't feel guilty for scheduling in rest. We New Englanders can feel that sometimes if we take a break. A healthy amount of rest is God's will for you. And in the long run, you'll be more productive when you're working if you're consistent with your resting. The Pharisees didn't understand that Sabbath rest was made for man. And Jesus told them right to their face. After hundreds of years of debate among the Pharisees about exactly, precisely how to be obedient to the Sabbath, Jesus undercut them and accused them of fundamentally misunderstanding the Sabbath from the start. What gave Jesus the authority to speak this way to the Pharisees. How could this man, Jesus, tell the Pharisees what the heart of the Sabbath was? What gave him the right? Jesus finishes his reply to the Pharisees with a bold statement, revealing the last thing that they had missed when they opened their mouths to condemn Jesus' disciples. Verse 28, so the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. 
the Pharisees didn't understand, that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. That's why he stripped away the Pharisees' oppressive regulations with such authority. Jesus was fully God and fully man, God with us. Jesus is the word of God. And long before he showed up in Bethlehem in a manger or before he was wandering in the grain fields of Galilee, he was with God and was God even at the time of creation. And on the seventh day of creation, God rested, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus invented the Sabbath. Jesus is Lord, and he's the Lord even over the Sabbath. And the Pharisees were bickering with Jesus about the little details of Sabbath observance and their obsession with the legalistic observance of the Sabbath. They actually missed that right in front of them was the very one who gave them the Sabbath in the first place. So he was the one person in that conversation who was qualified to define the purpose of the Sabbath. Not only did Jesus with the Father and the Spirit invent the Sabbath at creation. Jesus had also come to bring true, lasting, final Sabbath rest to his people and to the whole world. Turn with me, if you will, to Colossians chapter 2. Take a little detour here to understand how the Sabbath fits in to the larger picture. The Apostle Paul, here in Colossians 2, is speaking to Christians about the Sabbath and about other Jewish holidays and festivals. Colossians chapter 2. It's a letter to a church. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 16. Colossians 2, 16. Therefore... Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. I believe that this passage, along with Romans 14, chapter 5, is enough to make clear that strict observance of the seventh-day Sabbath is not required in the New Covenant. What's fascinating is Paul's reasoning why is it that this Sabbath command, a command so central to the identity of the people of God, has been changed with the coming of Jesus? Colossians 2, verse 17. These, these festivals, new moons, the Sabbath, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to to Christ. The Sabbath observance and every other festival and ceremony of the Old Testament were, Paul tells us, a shadow of things to come. Partially formed, incomplete, yet pointing forward in a beautiful way to the true fulfillment. The Sabbath was a shadow and the substance is Christ. A weekly day of Sabbath rest was a promise of eternal Sabbath rest. In Jesus. In Hebrews 3 and 4, the writer to the Hebrews describes how all those who believe in Christ enter God's rest 
by faith in Jesus. Christ has made the true, made true Sabbath rest available for us. Rest from works and rest in heaven. Jesus gives us true rest. First, Jesus gives us a Sabbath rest from our own works. Because Jesus paid the price for our sin, because he died the death we deserve, because of our sin against our creator, we are no longer judged, those of us who've put our faith in Christ, we're no longer judged on the basis of our works, what we do or don't do. Our deeds, no matter how sinful, aren't what God sees when he looks at us. If they were, we'd be doomed. We're all sinners. But when we put our faith in Jesus, we can rest from our works. Just like the Father rested from his works on the seventh day, we can rest from our works by faith in Christ, knowing that we stand before the Father justified apart from works by faith in Christ. Secondly, Jesus promises us Sabbath rest in heaven. The writer to the Hebrews describes how when God brought his people into the land that he had promised them, they never truly rested in the land. Their history in the land is a story of rebellion and unfaithfulness. But a final rest for the people of God, what the writer to the Hebrews calls a better city, what we see in Revelation is the new Jerusalem is coming. The people of God will have eternal rest. After striving for so many years in a broken world, longing for God to make all things new, with eyes fixed on his promises, we, his people, all who have put their faith in him, sojourners in a sinful world, one day we are going to see the new city, a new creation, and we're going to be in God's presence forever, cleansed of all sin, all disease, all decay, with every tear wiped from every eye. And Jesus is Lord over the Sabbath. He invented it. He's given us true Sabbath rest from our works because of the cross, and he's promised final, perfect, eternal rest for us when he calls us home. It'll be good to go home someday. The Pharisees didn't get it. They misunderstood the Sabbath. They didn't understand that their legalism was restless, that the ceremonial law was not ultimate, that Sabbath was made for man, and that Jesus is the Sabbath Lord. So my hope as we go from here is that, first of all, we'd better understand legalism as a result of what we've read here, and second of all, that we would love the Lord of the Sabbath. The Pharisees couldn't see it. They looked Jesus right in the face and they were blind to his true identity. He was their God and they couldn't see it. And some of you are here and like the Pharisees, you just don't get it. I don't want you to miss Jesus. Look at him, look to him, hear his words today. Don't turn away in blindness to who Jesus really is. 
He's the Lord. We live in a restless society and a restless world. We're all busy. We're all worn out. And for some of us New Englanders, rest makes us feel guilty because we think we're being lazy. It's not lazy. We need rest. It's okay to take a day off. And Jesus' Sabbath rest isn't just physical. It's rest for our souls. Many people don't know the Sabbath rest of Jesus, and they spend their entire lives trying to measure up and trying to get it figured out. Trying, by working hard, to do better, to attain God's standard. And that's exhausting, and it's impossible. Rest in Jesus is finished work. Or maybe you're a Christian, and you've spent your whole life trying to measure up to Pharisaic standards of morality, trying with all your might just to measure up, or at least to look like you measure up. Keeping up appearances is exhausting, and it can never give us rest. Rest from works is only found in Jesus. Even just the time we live in is exhausting. There's the never-ending political circus, and in 2020, a seemingly never-ending string of state, national, and world calamities that have us about at our wit's end some days. And no one seems to agree either. And it's hard to find anyone who seems level-headed. And we're all a bit drunk with disaster. Everyone's got an angle. Everyone's got a theory. And there's so much noise out there that maybe you feel like toning it all out. Exhaustion. Are you tired? Are you weary? Physically? Spiritually? Mentally? Emotionally? These are Jesus' words. Let them wash over you. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Go to the Sabbath, Lord, today. No matter your circumstance, no matter what brand of exhaustion you find yourself bearing, go to Jesus and find rest for your soul. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've introduced us to the Lord of the Sabbath. Thank you that we can rest in Jesus. Teach us Sabbath rest, weekly rhythms of physical and spiritual rest, and also a deeper internal rest. Resting from our works and resting in the promise of an eternal rest with you, Father, in your presence forever. We long for that rest, and we pray, Lord, that as we labor here in a broken world, that you would continue to give us rest for our souls. Be with us this week and send us by your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
you'd stand with me for our closing hymn, and we'll sing number 682, the first and last verses of Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah. How, how appropriate this morning to guide us, O Great Jehovah. First and last verses. Those that are interested in helping move that stuff, if we could meet right out back here, right, right, uh, right immediately, that'd be great. Thank you.